This is the whole, how to make it. God damn it! Jamie, this is you. I swear to God, I did it perfect last week. Oh, did you? <laughs> yeah, I this did. I did. <laughs> because Jamie's staring at us with I'm his I'm redoing this. Eye. <laughs> <laughs> Alright. Reset. It's like, it's like when your dad like watches. Not that I'm not saying that because you're old. I'm just because you're like a, a, um, an old yeah, I'm, to me. <laughs> I'm an old guy. Yeah. Just looks down <laughs> disappointingly. He's like, you can't even fucking say an intro. <laughs> well, with you. Come on, Gio. That's what you got. Your best intro yet. Right, here we go. We got it. All right. We are holding here, and this is the How to Make a Demon podcast. Have your host here, Gio, and our local celebrity co-host Haley. Hey. I put that in there. And our other local celebrity. I'm, no, you don't get celebrity status because you keep making me fuck up intros. No. Just <laughs> writer, director, whatever the fuck you did. <laughs> Jamie. Thank you. Thank you. Lovely intro. There you go. All right. So we're doing our podcast. This is episode five? Six. Six. Episode six. I wasn't on one. I'm sorry to make a count. Um, and Haley, how do you catch us? Oh, well. Or do I do this? Um, oh, so we have new episodes that are out every Tuesday, so be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash loveyourdemon. Or is that a backslash? What's the difference between a slash and a backslash? Forward. It's a forward slash. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The top, when the top edge, whichever way the top edge, top edge points. So it's a it's a forward oh that makes sense if it's forward moving slash. forward gotcha, but anyway you can also follow us HTY Prod on Twitter Instagram and Tumblr, and I'm sorry to everyone I offended that the people that I said fuck you don't follow us on Tumblr I hate you, I was just I was upset and Let taking it offended. out of me follow you us you know I really I genuinely want you to follow us on Tumblr did we get any new yeah. Tumblr followers no no <laughs> I think Jamie. You are, are. Am I the only one? You are the Wait, only I'm not following us on Tumblr. Oh, not even Gio's following you. <laughs> Gio, you've been holding out this whole time. You have a Tumblr? Yeah. I actually have like four Tumblrs, so I could have all of them follow it, and then we would have three followers, four followers. I can't even do math today. Well, so the thing that brought us all together here was the film How to Love Your Demon that Jamie wrote and directed. And. You can watch that at loveyourdemon.com. And if you like it, you should share it. Because, come on. Share it. I wouldn't. I like, I like Gio's, uh, what did Gio say earlier? Fix your shit. Fix your shit. I don't know what you're doing with your Fix life. Your shit. <laughs> yeah, come on. Get shout out to anyone listening to this because you saw a postcard at Forbidden Planet. Yay, marketing works. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks to Forbidden Planet for letting us put them out. Yeah, Justin at Forbidden Planet, you're the man. That's the guy that always does my comic books, too, and I didn't know that he was the manager, but he was the manager. And Justin's like, yeah, of course I'll put up your postcards. And then he looks at the stack that we have, and he's like, this is it? Because <laughs> well, it had, well, like, ten. <laughs> you only gave him ten? I gave you, like, more than... I, did you give him the whole stack? I gave him the whole stack. I'm exaggerating. Was, you know, I'm Dominican. <laughs> well, uh, we'll take some more over. I'll, I'll, I'll get some more. We'll take some more over there. We'll see if they even right. went away. No, it's well, cool. Hey. It's right at the door, so I think that's a good place to put. Them. Like so, right where you can. I'm using context clues here to assume that Forbidden Planet 
is a comic book shop in New York City. Oh, where yeah. We're it's, both located. It's my favorite comic book shop in New York City, yeah. It's it's a pretty famous comic book shop, right? I mean, it's... Yeah, I think they have one in the UK. Like, they're sort of a chain of some sort. But they were they were always on the corner of 13th and University, I think. Um, two floors. They had, like, an anime floor on the top and then a comic book floor on the bottom. And then two or three years ago, they moved over, like, two or three spaces. And uh, I like the new space a lot better. They have this big predator when you walk in. It's pretty cool. And they have a lot of... They're on Broadway, not University. Oh, is it Broadway? Sorry, yeah. Broadway, not University. Um, yeah, so they just moved two spaces down. But um, before them, uh, my favorite comic book store was uh, Jim Henley's. But Jim Henley's had a move, and I don't really like the new space. And then, the, I don't know, I'm not a big fan of what they're doing now. So I moved over to Forbidden Planet. I like Forbidden Planet. I don't go there often because it's a little out. When we, Gio and I used to work near, it's near Union Square. Uh, I went in there more often, but now uh, I have one closer to here, which I don't actually ever, rarely ever go to comic book shops. But, but anyway, yeah. We're excited. Well, why would you? Because you can buy everything on the internet. See, yeah, that's the sad thing. It is, it is sad. Well, it's sad and it's not, but there will always be comic book shops. They're not going to go away. There just will be fewer of them. Say that. I think they just become, I mean, what they have become, and it's like a sell nerdy shit shop instead of a yeah. comic book shop. They diversify, yeah. right? They have anime, yeah. they have toys, they have games, they, they kind of get all their pop culture stuff in, in one place. But, yeah. right. I, there should be a library that's specifically for comic books. I, would I think they do, they do have comic books at the library. Like, New York City but, Library actually does. They have a lot of graphic novels and stuff at the New York City Public yeah. Library. But I want like a comic book store that's actually a library. It's great. Well, I think you you're. Just go in and explore. You dabble. I think you're doing the comic book shop incorrectly because my comic book <laughs> shop is sort of a library. Yeah, you go hang out there and you read. Oh right. <laughs> they actually Are there any? Get, I mean, Forbidden Plant's really good about it. They don't get pissed off. They're like, "Hey, do what you gotta do." And people are always like, "They they have the comics all the way at the back, so you have to like go through everything to get yeah. to your comics." And uh, there's always, like, a line of people just sitting on the floor reading the latest issues. And I'm like, well, you know, you should give them a little money, but whatever. But they probably don't make that much money off of a book. They make money off of the other stuff. That's why they don't care. Are there any comic book shops left in Asheville? Because that's one thing that that Asheville's always had a hard time keeping keeping a hold of. Mm -hmm. The only one I know of, it's on Tunnel Road. I feel like it's called maybe Comic Envy, but just the fact that it's not, it's in a very it's not a good location. It's where the old blockbuster used to be on Tunnel, right? Possibly. Yeah, I, I know. Then there is one on North Asheville off Brevard Road, way up though. Um, it's almost huh. in. Um, oh shit! What's the name of the little community just north of Beaver Dam, the lake there? Uh, you go. Mm. Um, Anyway, it's way up there. I've, I've been there a couple times, but well, one of my friends used to have a, a fairly popular shop right downtown, Sword in the Grail, that was open for years, but he closed that down years ago. It's a hard hard thing to keep. Is he just not making enough income to no. keep it alive? No, not in downtown Asheville, no. Yeah, it's tough. So for anyone listening, I live in beautiful Asheville, North Carolina, and I've lived here for five years now but still I mean any 
whatever you just referenced, places that are slightly outside Asheville, I'm still very confused. Um, but yeah, it's definitely changing a lot. And as far as I know, there's, there's no comic book store downtown that I've ever been to. But so, all right. So here we are. It's episode six of our podcast. And I feel like we're having a bit of an identity crisis. Jill likes that series. I do like it, but it's called Final Crisis, not Identity Crisis. There was oh. an Identity Crisis run on DC, because I remember it. It was in the late 90s. Oh, was there? I'm going to find that for you, but anyway, Haley, you're right. Bit of Identity Crisis. Yeah, so we want you to listen to us, but we understand that maybe you're not listening to us because you don't really know who we are or what we're talking about or what we'll talk about next. So... Who are we? Geo? Oh great, I gotta start. I think we should I think we should go back to basics. I would like to I mean honestly if someone like I feel like we're we're definitely friends now, Geo, but if someone was like, What does Geo do? I'm like Oh, what do I do in my real life? Um my real life I work in the wonderful world of advertising. I obviously don't like it that much. (laughs) Um, but it's job. It's what I do for now. Um, and I work in like the the weird uh, techie side of it. Um, there's definitely like I've always said like Mad Men came out and they were doing like the whole thing with like this is the advertising world. It was one of the first times that like that really hit TV. And it's a really interesting world um, just in general, just like the characters that you run into that are working there. Um, but there definitely should be one on like the modern advertising world because it's not really like direct to brand people anymore there's so many like middlemen like that's what i would call it like middlemen like there's an entire industry of just over the past i would say like five well more than five or six years but at least i've been in the industry five or six years so i've seen it like grow like every four or five months this new business will grow in between the two businesses that were there and it's become this whole big thing. And I work literally in the middle. I work in this thing called The Exchange. Um, and it's where you can buy mass ads. But that's not too interesting. Maybe one day somebody cares I think it's it. pretty interesting. I mean, does everyone drink hard liquor all day long? Um, not all day long, but there's a lot of like, uh, what do they call it? My, my boss has a great word for it. He's like, you have to, you have to do, a, he doesn't say events. You have to do like whatever with your partners. Um, so like we're encouraged. Like whining and dining? Yeah, but he has like a word for it. And it's like a very, he's Australian. He has a very Australian word for it. Um, but yeah, he encourages us to take out. And that's like a huge part of my job. Like I have to go out, um, with clients all the time just to like, you know, get them to do business with us. And the people that spend the more money taking out clients is unfortunately the people that get more business. So the more you do it, that really does. So we're not drinking at, eight in the morning but we're drinking like at one or two especially in the summer (laughs) in the summer all we do is like fucking do events during the day like i remember reaching out to one of my partners and i was like hey we should go catch a baseball game he's like yeah we should do it wednesday whatever and i'm like that's a really fucking specific day and then i look at the calendar i'm like oh it's a day game that day (laughs) yeah so I think it is it is kind of interesting. I mean, you can talk a little bit about how a lot of people I don't think understand how the online ad world works. I mean, the exchange is interesting and in how when you see banner ads and things on websites, like how those how is it that you see that specific ad at that specific time? 
Um, all right, cool. Um, let's see. So where I started with it was just like literally. So if you ever did any web code at all, you might not even know this, but they'll leave like spaces and it, like you can put like a piece of code that'll just drag in like something else. So they'll leave like these spaces essentially. And it's, it's almost as if it's a literally a billboard. Um, and then we can drag in the advertising on the side. So your web page will load and the advertising just comes on the side. That's why those ad blockers work so well because they just stop that side of, that part of the process. Like the it's called injection. Is- it's basically a, it's a JavaScript or HTML injection into the site. Right. So I, worked, I started working doing that. And then where I am now, it's kind of like it's become really high level. So, you know, all these websites are generating like ridiculous amounts of traffic now as more and more people start to use the internet. Like, you got to remember that eight years ago, the idea that a lot of people were online was a, not a thing. Like, people were sort of using the web, but not, not anywhere nearly as like even your grandmother's on the internet now. Before that time, like people just, you know, they would casually go online. There, there would be like, I remember the idea of like having a set time that you would use your computer or something like that. And this wasn't too long ago. So now you're on the internet all day long. Like everything you do at work, you're doing whatever. And, you know, you're watching this video, you're watching that. And everywhere you go, there's a fucking ad. So it's gotten to the point where the idea of, let's say you're, um, Let's say you're BuzzFeed, right? BuzzFeed is not capable of directly selling all the inventory that they generate. Like they can't, like they have billions of, of web views a year or a month or whatever the fuck it is. They have billions of them. They can't literally go out and directly sell all of them. They, there's just no functional way for them to do it. And they could actually probably handle like, I think like a, a good amount would be like 30 to 40%. If your sales team can go out and directly go, go to Pepsi and say, or you know, not just Pepsi, but every single brand, and say and directly say to them, "Hey, buy 30 to 40 percent of our inventory." That's they're doing well if they can do that. Most of them do like 20. So, what do you do with the extra 60 percent? You don't just let that go. Like you're not. You see a lot of ads online. Obviously, people are buying them. So it becomes a sort of uh, I call it like a stock market essentially. And by the second, right, a mass amount of um, of inventory will just go up on our exchange and the way that they bunch it up is like instead of buying a website that really hasn't become that that interesting anymore like the idea that a website is specific to one thing doesn't really exist so if pepsi says hey we really need to hit our 18 to 20 male demo then they're not going to just sell to ign anymore ign being a gaming website they're, they're not going to do that anymore instead what they do is all these since you've been using the web over and over again and Google's been sitting there figuring out who you are, they have a pretty good idea of who you are. And to say 18 to 20, that's a huge range. In fact, they could probably get your age within like a three to four month um, amount. So they have a pretty good idea of what you are and then our exchange will just like bunch you up with a bunch of like other 18 to 20 year olds and say, hey, for this second, we have 200,000 18 to 20 year olds just across the web, do you wanna buy it? And you can buy them at a $5 CPM, which means like for, uh, you will pay $5 for every thousand of them that we send to you. Um, and then that's it. And that just happens all day long. 
so what a lot of people don't realize is that, and maybe a lot of people do realize this, I don't know, but like there are a number of ad networks that will, that use, well, that, that code gets used across many, many websites, right? So most of these websites who say, okay, so let's say we decided we wanted to put ads on How to Love Your Demons website. We could right. tap into one of the existing major ad networks that would ensure our best chance of actually delivering um, inventory and monetizing the people that come into the website. So this is how like when you go to Amazon, for example, and you search for a thing, you see that ad follow you around the web is right. because these ad networks are across so many websites. So what Gio is saying is that when they say, oh, here's Haley or here's Gio or here's Jamie, they, of course it's anonymized, but they know your browsing habits. When they fill that ad, it doesn't necessarily mean you're on a specific website. You could be on any number of websites that use that like ad net that specific ad network. Right, you'll see and an ad become, wherever you are. Like the word, so saying ad network, that's big faux pas. You're not supposed to say that anymore. Mm. Um, at least within the industry, because that, go, that goes back to what I said earlier of like the whole middleman aspect, right? Because before it used to just be an ad network that did that, but now there's four or five different steps in between what you just said and they cover like the dis the different aspects of what you said they were doing so there's the people that like figure out who you are there's the people that like they handle you know mail inventory or like they handle like female sites because they know how to like sell to that market and there's all this shit that just like goes in between and they have different names for them like an ssp or a dsp or whatever and all this shit doesn't just doesn't mean anything it all bunches up to what an ad network used to be um and the exchange is just that was the ultimate stamp in the middle because all this used to happen before um but there was no actual functional place where it happened it kind of just happened in between it would happen in like different sets right but now there's like a functional in between um where like a few big companies handle doing that so that's where i work and i work at one when of you say a few big companies like how many companies are really doing this exchanges there's not a lot of them there's like i would say five or six functional exchanges like there may be more they're not doing enough business they're going to get bought up by somebody at some point they cut there's there's businesses that grow just because you know you get to a point now that if you can gather enough information you're worth buying to someone for a couple million dollars here and there. So like people will go out, they'll start a company and they'll get it to grow just to that level just for the sole purpose of selling it. Um, you see that a lot in, app, in apps too. Like you'll see apps that are just kind of like their purpose and that, and that app was never really to do anything just to get themselves sold was really the purpose of the app. And they're just gathering enough information to get themselves to that point. Well, like today I had heard that Microsoft bought LinkedIn Yes, for $24.6 billion, which is... It's a yep. lot. <laughs> I mean, I thought they were worth it, for sure. $24.6 billion for one of the biggest yeah. social networks. That's pretty, yeah, pretty it's, fair. It's a big, it was a big sale. Big, big sale. Well, well, there you go. The wonderful world of ads. Digital, online, I don't know what you call them these days. It's just digital. ads. It's called digital. Digital advertising. I just learned that the big buzzword, I was at a conference in San Francisco last week, and the big buzzword is addressable advertising. And I don't know how long this buzzword has been around, but I just heard it for the first time literally last week. It. Everybody in the ad world was talking about it, in the media world. 
addressable addressable ads, addressable content. And I was like, okay, because the ad world loves to do that. They pick a buzzword and boy, they all glom oh, yeah. onto it like flies on shit. They're like, they will use it until everybody's like, you know what? I'm tired of hearing this. Let's make a new buzzword. And yes. Then they roll out well, a new what buzzword. Is, what is addressable advertising? Yeah, I don't know. Addressable. Addressable advertising is the idea that we can now target ads that are very relevant to you and what you're doing, right? So we're in a world of big data. We're in a world where, you know, you are you're 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 leaving tracks all over the internet, right? Everything that you do, everything that you look at, everything uh, that you interact with, data is being gathered from you. It's anonymized, you know, and depending on where you land on the fence with privacy. Um, it's you could either see it as a good thing or a bad thing. I tend to lean towards a good thing because what it allows people to do is they can now target things very specific to you that are relevant. So that you know, in the old days of you know, to use the the origins of advertising, it was we have to blast a message out to as many people as we can and hope that a very small percentage of people will respond to it and convert. Right. So if I created an ad on television, you know, a Super Bowl ad that 50 million people see while watching the Super Bowl and that 2% of those 50 million people result in buying my product, that's a huge success because what's, you know, what's, you know, do the math. You can do the math depending on how much you paid for the ad and how much your product is worth. You know, there's, there's a whole bunch of levers, but it's a, it's a very, uh, inefficient way of marketing your product, right? What's more efficient is if I know, like Gio just touched on it, you have been searching for shoes on Amazon. So, so Amazon does this really well with their original content, right? They're like, you know, oh, you've been searching for this particular clothing, right? They can now tie that into a show that they have that they've made, right? Um, and market that to you or or – and it becomes relevant, which meaning meaning that you are much more likely to engage. The the chance of you engaging with that ad goes through the roof because it is very specific to you, um, and so they call that addressable. the The other way of looking at it too is that they can also get you in a moment where um, it's not even just about like, do you like this thing or is this thing relevant to you, but can we catch you in a moment where you are most likely to engage with it because you know maybe your you know, maybe you're shopping for us. The only example I can pull because we were talking about baby diaper ads at work today. But, you know, I'm searching for diapers on Amazon and maybe they hit me with, you know, uh, an ad for uh, Catastrophe, right? Which is, uh, I think, is that Amazon or is that Hulu? It, whatever. But let's pretend it's, you know. And it's very relevant. Amazon. It's very relevant to the, you know, the the thing that you're buying. And so you might be more likely to engage with it. Um, that's what they call addressable. But it's the buzz right now. Everybody was talking about it at the conference. So, <laughs> so great. Can't keep up. Hmm. Well, I mean, that sounds... Yeah, I guess it is just the buzzword. Because that makes sense. Now when you describe it, it sounds like all advertising. Yeah, well, the advertising world, they advertise themselves, right? It's all about rolling yeah. what may seem like a quote-unquote new product so that they can turn around and sell it as a new ad product. When the reality is it's the same ad product they've been selling a billion different ways for the past decade, right? I mean, it's, um, I mean, the technology is advancing. Don't get me wrong, but the the no, I, loves to. I firmly agree with you. I mean, it's still a business that revolves around selling, not around technology. So it's really more important, and that's where you see a lot of things fail, right? Because at the end of the day, if you you know, it's really more important that 
whatever they're working on could be sold, then it actually be a functional product. And and that's where you kind of fall off the wall, right? Because you eventually get to the point where you have to deliver on what you said you were going to deliver and you can't get there if you, you didn't spend enough time talking your way until your dev team could actually get to do it. So I, I fight that all the time. It's pretty funny. But the older I get, the less I care about it. <laughs> yeah, it pays the bills. Exactly. Those bills got to get paid. I'm going to Taiwan. Get some dumplings. Taiwan? Hell yeah. Really? World You're going to Taiwan? Yeah. When? I made an executive decision. Uh, I'm to Labor Day weekend. Okay, I'm not, we'll get into that later. <laughs> moving on. <laughs> moving on. Okay, well, moving on to Jamie. You were saying that you were in San Francisco at a conference, but who are you? What do you do? Who am I? What do I do? Um, I work in television. Uh, I can say who I work for. I mean, it's it's out there. It's public. Uh, I work at Viacom, which is a large media company. We own um, a lot of big brands, MTV, Comedy Central, VH1. Uh, no, I don't write TV shows. No, I don't work on the sexy brand stuff. I, I mean, what I do is cool, I think. I think I have... I'm lucky in that I have a very cool job there, but I had... I am head of the new products group. So I am the guy who gets to try to think of new ways to create products around our content. Um, it, the only, the easiest way I've found to describe what I do is it's kind of like being a producer on a movie to tie it back to, you know, the topic of this, of this podcast and that, and then kind of going a little further, but a part, it's part creative in that I have to design products so, you know, looking back into past products that I've done and released, for example, my previous job was at Showtime where I uh, worked on the Showtime Anytime product and we were going to launch a over-the-top service, meaning, you know, you could buy Showtime without uh, your cable subscription. And so I was responsible for the Roku platform, for our, our app on the Roku platform. And so I had to design the experience that a user would take to sign up and um, uh, get onboarded into our over-the-top platform. Um, so I took an existing application that was in the wild and I had to kind of refit it to fit a, an over-the-top solution, meaning what we had now with Showtime Anytime, you had to have your cable credentials, right? We call it TVE, TV Everywhere which means if you download Showtime Anytime, which still exists, uh, you are required to have a cable subscription or a satellite subscription with DirecTV or Comcast or Charter or Cox, depending on where you live. And to watch Showtime's content, you would log in with the credentials from that cable company um, and you would have to have Showtime in your subscription tier. That's been the way it's been done for the past few years. And then we followed HBO's suit where we said, okay, now you can actually subscribe to Showtime without a cable package. Um, so I had to figure out what that experience looked like. Like, how does a user do that, you know, through our application? You know, do we make them go on the website and do it? Can they do it within the app on the Roku? There's all these user experience problems you have to solve. So I designed the interfaces, um, which means I spent a lot of time wireframing and thinking about, you know, how the user travels through the application, what the pain points are, where we might lose them, how they might fall off, you know, are they going to be confused? Wait, what do you mean by wireframing? 
so sketching. So imagine, you know, what we mean by wireframing is, um, you know, I may draw a bunch of boxes that represent what the screen might look like, um, you know, um, on the Roku app, right? But I'm just sketching it out to try to, well, it's really about identifying, it's really about, it's really about minimizing the friction for the user, right? If, if a user uses your application and they hit walls or hit things that confuse them or they don't understand or the, or the user experience is bad, you're going to lose them, right? So it's all about keeping their experience the best possible experience ever through, through it and keeping them coming back. Um, so it's similar to storyboarding. Very, very much, process. very much like that. Yep. Very much like that. Um, I uh, will often, so because I have a design background, I started out as a graphic designer and a web designer, I will often take it steps further and actually design some of the interfaces or kind of play art director or creative director with a, with a designer on my team. Um, so that could be kind of could becomes the next phase. And so it, it, it's, also a, it's also a very political role, especially now. I'm a director now, so I spend a lot of time um, brokering between what we call business stakeholders, right? So an example might be uh, the ad operations team says you need to serve these kind of ads within your within your experience. Okay, so I, as a product owner, have very strong opinions about what the ad experience should be like in my product. So I now have to kind of broker an agreement like, okay, how can we create a product that will give the, the ad ops team what they need and the revenue team what they need because obviously we have to serve ads to make money but how can i also create the best possible experience for the user then uh the next person down the road might be you know uh content distribution has rules around you know you're going to have all these business units that have rules and things that they need accomplished and i have to find ways to accommodate that in our product um so it's a lot of so the product that I've been on now, I've been spending about a year doing a lot of this brokering and what I like to call horse trading and 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 you know designing and prototyping and and then once we go into production, then I actually oversee the development. So I work with the developers, the coders, the 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 people that actually build it, and then you kind of move into more of that producer role where you in you I don't like to use the term enforce, but you kind of do enforce the vision, right? So I, as the product owner, am the – a lot of ways that people like to describe it is I become the CEO of the product, right? So I'm the advocate. I'm like, okay, we have a vision for this product. And when a thing tends to start being built, it's very similar to directing a movie or producing a movie, right? It's like you want to bring all the talent on board to build and make the thing, but you have to keep it confined within the, the vision. You don't want it straying too far, right? So you're doing constant quality checks and – all the way through the development process, which can last, depending on the size of a product, you know, a, you know, six months, a year, two years, three years, and then oftentimes once it's out in the wild, then you continue to iterate on it. You continue to create new features. You pay attention to what the users are doing. How are they using it? Are there pain points? Are they not liking features? Do they want new features? And then you keep going and you keep iterating. Uh, you, you're We're all... back. Did I, Did... I missed a big part of that my computer oh. froze i don't know if anyone else has did me too i did a little dance yeah. i yeah i saw the end of your dance too. <laughs> i don't oh, know what you lost but it's a it's a big so, yeah well i'm wondering so are you the only person that holds that job or do you have a you have a team i have a team yeah um 
I mean, I, there are many product owners in our group, right? So we are the, I work at the central product group at Viacom and we have, you know, we have different, different products that we make and each product has a product owner. Um, I sit at the director level, so my team is small now, but it's growing, but I will have product managers underneath me um, who might each own a specific piece of the product that we're building, right? So I will kind of hold together the, the whole vision for the product, but I will delegate, you know, you own the piece that deals with the video player and you own the piece that deals with the ad people, you know, you own this piece and then they can go off and do their thing and, and, and uh, it comes back. But no, it's, there's a, there's a lot of product managers on our, on our, on our team. But you oversee a lot, man, that, whew, it's tough keeping tabs on people. I mean, I, I can't relate to that experience specifically, but just managing people in general, that is not the job for me. (laughs) I love it. I, I have fun. It's, uh, it's all about, really, it's all about surrounding yourself with the right people, right? You got to find people you trust. You got to find people that, that you, you know, share a creative vision, but you also want to find people that will challenge you. Uh, okay, I think we're back. Can you hear me okay? All right. Yep. Yeah. Uh, what was I, what was you asking? Steve Jobs. Um, well, yeah, you were saying it's all about finding the right people and um, finding people that'll work with you, but also challenge you. Yeah, we, you know, there product product people have kind of become the celebrities in the tech world mainly because these are the guys you typically see up on the stages that are evangelizing the products. So Steve Jobs is probably the most, you know, he kind of, I think, created in my mind is like the guy who kind of popularized the product guy. Um, but you have to be careful, you know, um, Zuckerberg, you know, from Facebook, like, they run those companies, but they're also the big product visionaries for those companies. Um, they tend to can get very egomaniacal, you know, in their visions. And so I think it's important that you have people around you that will challenge that vision. And you have to be open to being able to say, you know what, I may have a good idea, but it doesn't mean that I'm, you know, it's the best idea or the right idea. So mm. it's creative. It's fun. But it's um, it's a lot of it takes a lot of different uh, parts of the brain, and there are days where I feel like I'm better suited for for you know the creative side than I or the technical side than I am you know the politicking side you know or the yeah. the the side where you have to be kind of a a salesman almost you know. Hmm. Yeah, because from what you're describing, it sounds like a lot of your job is like creative problem solving. Yeah, it can be. It can be, you know. Um, and that's the that's the part I love the most, you know, where you can get in a room and get on a whiteboard and, and really think through a problem. But then there's days where your job is literally just trying to convince people that the thing that you want to make is worth making and giving you money to make it or, you know, convincing them that, you know, if you, they could just allocate the resources to build this tool, it'll make their lives better. And that job becomes very hard because you learn that people don't generally want to do more work or do much work at all. You know, they just kind of want to build most people, for the most part, people just want to be able to coast by. And, uh, I am not that kind of person. I'm like, you know what? If you're coasting by and you're you're think you think your life's going easy, it's probably not. 
uh, and you need to shake it up and 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 uh, you know you just you get bored. So it's. I think the problem you run into though a lot is that so you're the I mean uh, are you, you're a leader in your your group right? Mm-hmm. So I mean you're a leader in your group and you you get the opportunity to motivate your team to do stuff, but you're working with so many different teams that are run by so many different people that are not necessarily motivated to do anything. Yeah. And it, and it's like difficult to like want to do more than status quo if you like if you don't see the point to it. Because at the end of the day, right? Like I mean, what's the point of doing extra work for you personally? Right. If you're not getting out of anything out of it, then there's really nothing. You have to show, yeah. You have to show value, and you know that's that's the job I'm doing now, where you have to show value across the organization or across the team or the people that you're doing. You have to show, look, if we do this, it's going to make your life easier. But it might take a little investment up front, you know. Right. Anyway, that's me. It's a it's a fun world. It's at TV. The intersection of TV and technology is an exciting place to be right now. So I love it. It is, yeah. It feels like every day it could be a different story. Mm-hmm. So that leaves you, Haley. I feel like I'm the type of person that would really benefit from like a concise mission statement or like something that could sum up what I do because without that, which I don't have right now, I was not prepared for this, <laughs> even though I started these questions. It's hard. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's easy to, like, downplay yourself. Uh, But, yeah, I don't know. So for the purpose of this podcast, I am an actor. Um, But I'm a very picky actor, which makes things interesting. Um, I don't... I don't... (sighs) It's just a love-hate relationship with acting. Um... Really, I'm just a very confused person trying to figure it out. And I do a lot of odd jobs. I recently, <laughs> so my recent job that I've gotten is making orthopedic dog braces. What? It's real life. It's actually, it's pretty amazing. I mean, anyone that doesn't believe in manifestation, seriously, like, email me. We got some <laughs> shit to talk about. Wait, what does manifestation mean? Um, taking the things that you want in your head and ideas and making them physical. Okay. So like, yeah. So for a while I was like trapped in the restaurant industry. I moved here from Pennsylvania to Asheville because I just needed a fresh start and I was like, yeah, I could work in restaurants. And I worked in restaurants, and I was a damn good waitress. And then I was managing, and then I realized this is just more work and less money. And I was like, man, I wish I, I wish there was a way that I could make money and not be stuck in a restaurant. And uh, see, now I'm just getting really self-conscious and anxious talking about myself. This is a problem. I need, I need help with this. Yeah, the, the easy thing. The easy thing to do is just keep talking. Yeah. <sighs> no, that is not. That is not the easy thing to do. That is the opposite. Keep going. Or maybe the best thing. Maybe that's what I meant to say. The best thing to do is just no, keep talking. It's hard. No, it's hard without questions too. I don't know. I just. I'm just a. I'm just a typical girl. No, you're not. You what does better. that mean? You know better than that. <laughs> 
So manifesting, I like this though. Manifesting because now you're gonna get me on my. Uh, I love talking about that kind of shit. Uh, Ooh, is it is it is it really is it really the universe handing it to you, or is it you making specific steps to make it happen? Because I tend to believe the latter. Yeah, things don't well. just get things don't just get handed to you. You gotta. My favorite analogy is if you want to get hit by the train, you gotta be standing on the right tracks, right? You, you're not gonna, you know, you gotta do some maneuvering no. yourself. That makes sense, but just like, I don't know, I guess it was a new concept to me to just give yourself the freedom to say like, hey, maybe I don't have to be miserable and stuck in this like train of thought that I think I'm stuck in. And like the magical phrase for me was what if, it's like, what if I could have a job where I wasn't stressed out all the time? Or like, what if I could, I mean, like some of the jobs that I'm working now, like you can't make this shit up. It's just, I don't know, it's interesting. It's just been my quest to happiness. But I do feel fulfilled in that. And I feel like I'm, I'm on the right track. But uh, I don't like talking about it. Honestly, like, my least favorite part about acting is talking about acting. It sucks. And really, it's, it's, it's the same with, like, with writing. I'll find myself doing that. And Jamie, maybe you can relate, but like it, usually the people that are talking about writing aren't the people that are writing. It's just like, yeah. So uh, this is a new step for me. Doing this podcast is new, even just like forcing myself to talk because to be honest, I hate talking to people. Well, I like talking to you I, guys. But you're not, you, I yeah. Have, I have like a, I don't know. It's not really a question, I guess maybe. Because it's always, like, been interesting for me. Like, I've always, part of me is, like, this is a complaint that I always have. But then part of me also knows that this is, like, something that I used to kind of, like, have as a crutch and just be, like, it keeps me in the right mentality to just be able to do what I do. So, like, I've always been, like, well, you know, I understand that, you know, I have to pay the bills. And, you know, my dad worked for 30 years hating his fucking job, still fucking does it. And, like, you don't need to love your job. So, like, I can go in and I can do my job that I absolutely hate, and it, it's fine. Like, I that's what helps me do it. And I'm, like, I still haven't found, like, that thing that I like. But you guys, I feel like both of you have, or to, to an extent, work in something that you like. There, there's an element that, of what you do that you really enjoy. Like, there's very little in what I do. I, like, I would say not even 10% in what I do that I actually enjoy. Um so, like, what is it like to be able to actually, you know, you get to at the end of the day, there is a part of it that, or maybe there's not, uh, but there is a part of it that's like, oh, this, this is something I enjoy doing. I don't know, man. This is, I'm 37 years old, and this job that I've had for almost a year now is the first job that I have not hated after a year. It's oh. the first job, right? I've been doing what I've been doing for 20 years almost. So it's um I I don't think that's necessarily true like and I still there are still other things I would rather be doing right right that's always been my fear right because if it's not true well I mean I I don't like I meant what Gio's statement like as if I have found like the nirvana of jobs like I have found a job that fulfills me like right like it, like if your job you know at the end of the day there's I don't know if this is the right word solace 
and like um well there's a sense of like, yeah, like think, you know I, you at the end of the day you have this sense of like you know i'm doing something i enjoy yeah yeah, it like, doesn't drive you, know, you nuts. You don't get home at the end of the day going, oh, that fucking job. Why am I doing it? Right. You know? Like, And uh, the way I get to cope with it is complete apathy. Like, I just don't care. And I'm able to just, like, disconnect. You know, 5 o'clock hits and I'm – Yeah. I'm I know you I know you yeah. as a person, Joe, and I can tell you right now that's bullshit. Like, I don't think any of us can actually do that. I That, that stuff surfaces. Well, to an extent, obviously, yeah. But, like, you know, I'll get pissed off about certain interactions. But about the actual job, I don't care about but I, uh, that was more so like what you're specifically talking about. I was more so offended about how I was talked to that day. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm just person. saying overall yeah. that stuff surfaces in other ways, and it you may not see it on a surface level, but it's there. Like people like that 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 stuff has a way of sneaking up on you later in life, and sure. I I don't jobs, you know. I think my th- my thing was is that early on I made a decision like way early on like coming out of high school I made a decision that I was going to try like hell to find something that was in the creative field that felt like it was true to the kind like to my nature as a creative person I didn't I I strayed away off the mark I mean coming out of high school I wanted to be a writer like Writing is all I ever wanted to do. I strayed way off that fucking mark. But I was lucky enough to be a creative person that I liked art, I liked design, I liked gra- you know, and I I kind of stayed in the wheelhouse. But I mean, come on. There's some jobs I've had where I'm like, yes, I get to be creative, you know, I get to be this product guy or this developer or whatever, but I don't give two shits about this industry, right? And then that's where you get that rub where you're just like, this is not doing it for me. This job that I have now, and and arguably even the last one I had at, at Showtime, is the first time where it's like, okay, I love TV, I love create, you know, being a creative problem solver. Now it's starting to kind of line up. Thirty-seven years old, man. Like it doesn't, you know, that that shit. Thirty-seven takes, is not that old takes anymore. Yeah, I know. Anymore. It just. Oh, my it's point not is, that is old it, though anymore? Is it? Is it takes time? You'll get. Well, but I guess I guess the other side of my question though is like. Let's say you did become that writer, and let's say you were writing. Is that like? Is that let's say that was still your goal? Like, do you think? Do you think you'd be like exponentially happier with your job? Fuck no, because writing is a very right? difficult thing for me. It's probably the most difficult thing for me. I think if if it wasn't, I'd be a writer by now, and I would probably be like writing shit that I didn't care about. Right? I'd be having the same kind of conversation, but being like, God, I wish I could get out of the writing game. This is just soul sucking, right? Right. Yeah. Well, for me, like, I, I really struggled with depression for many years. So it got, it got to a point where like, I hit the ultimate low. And it's like, all right, what do I do to like, just get by? What do I do to survive? And like, that's kind of how I built myself up to this point. And kind of like what I think, Gio, what you had said, like your parents, with my parents, they both are total workaholics and maybe in that sense I'm just rebelling against them and being like fuck you I'm gonna have no job you know (laughs) like I don't want to be like you and be miserable um but I just really completely rejected that and it's just I I'm hella sensitive and emotional and it's and it's really hard for me to do something if I don't fully believe in it. And maybe that's really idealistic. Um, that's where I'm at right now. 
It's the true sign of a millennial. <laughs> you know, people shit on millennials so much. I think millennials are awesome. People don't. People don't shit. Uh, my generation and up shit. That was funny because at this conference, um, I was telling a coworker today that I heard a lot of media people they they talk about millennials and now Gen Z as this kind of alien thing that we so desperately want to understand, right? Because that's our audience now. We got to make money off our audience. But they can't quite figure them out. And I kept hearing these guys on in these women on these panels, you know, in their my age and older, thirty mid thirties and up, were like, you know, the millennials and Gen Z, they're like this and they do that. But normal people like us and I'm like, that's really like the mindset of like the people that are creating the stuff right now is that and I think this is an interesting conundrum for the television industry, especially the media industry especially, is you look at things like ratings on linear TV or like the, the traditional media networks and the ratings are in the shitter because you have these middle-aged guys who are try- so desperately trying to understand Gen, a- Gen Z and, and the millennials. And then you look at the stuff the millennials are creating on YouTube and all that stuff that are getting hundreds of millions if not billions of views and you understand it's like this industry is so out of touch with the people but it's just so funny watching them up there going – Gen Z and Gen and and the millennials they want this, but normal people like us. I was like, <laughs> well, isn't you... it like? I mean, I don't know. I don't know how your industry works, but like my industry is so young. Like, you know, the the high ups are not too much older than me, or yeah. depending on where you are, the high ups are younger than me. I feel like the ad sales world is like the new digital equivalent of like the hedge funds back, you know, the Wall Street. Yeah, like all the yeah, kids wanted to sure. go into Wall Street because they could get rich for quick. Sure. I feel like the ad world is that now, right? It's like, for sure, oh, because this... like you get paid on commission. So, you know, if you're doing ad sales at Facebook, you're making a lot of money. You're making a lot of money. Uh, like, you know, and it's not too hard to get a It's still. It's still very much so like, oh, your cousin knows the guy, whatever, and like that's how you get the job. Because there's really like, and they're gonna fucking, they're gonna land and ask me for this, but there's like no clear like, like skill set that you need to do that job. Like doing that, you you learn to do that job by doing that job. There's nothing I don't. I never really found anything like from what I learned. I mean, I went to college for a completely different thing, but I don't think this is something you could really teach. And it's a lot of like, there's a lot of like instinctual things that you're doing to get yourself high up there that you don't like, you're not going to really learn that anywhere other than working there. And, you know, when everyone's so young, the amount of time that you need to learn it is getting smaller and smaller, right? Because it's a lot of like, you know, like I would say about you, Haley, is like you kind of have like the, the, the mindset that you can just fucking do it, right? Like you kind of say, like I'm gonna do that, and you you just go for it, and you have a lot of people with that mindset now. And I feel like in comparison to different generations, like that wasn't necessarily it. Like my dad would have never thought that. Like my dad was more so like I have a role and I'm gonna do this, and this is like what it is. And he never thinks to like, like I can. Well, wait, not- I'm not really sure what you mean. The thought that was coming to mind is like, well, I. Like, when's the last time you guys refreshed your resume? Because I've come to peace with the fact that, like, I feel like like I will never look good on paper. And it's something I struggle with regularly. And I found that the, the places that I excel are when 
I get like a word of mouth recommendation or I know someone that knows me and they say like, yeah, this person's good to work with or I meet someone and then I really settle into a job. But it's it's really like dude, it's fucking hard. I think resumes are fine. <laughs> No, look, I, I felt that same way too for a lot of years. Like it re- literally wasn't until the last three or four years that my telling my story as to what I did snapped it. Like sometime go to my LinkedIn profile, which has pretty much my entire career on it and start at the bottom and look up. And it's very, you know, web design, developer, video games, mobile games, back to ad agencies. Like it was all over the place. And people would look at me and go, are you creative? Are you technical? Who are you? What are you? And I didn't know how the fuck to answer that question up until literally like three years ago until, you know, the job where I met Gio where I was like, I think I might be a product guy. Like I think – and then all of a sudden it starts to snap into focus and then you start to – you know, once once you can do that, um, you can really kind of start positioning yourself in a way that, um, you know, it's it's like building a brand. It's like selling – you know, telling a brand story, right? You, you know, you're a very independent spirit. You're a self-made person. So you have to kind of craft your brand and craft your story. Um, Yeah. I mean, I definitely feel like I struggle with that, just figuring out how to position myself. And I feel like just, I, I find myself drawn to people that I think are inspiring and like mostly small business people. And I just want to learn how they do what they do. Like people that I think have cool lives. And I'm just like, what could I do? Teach me. And one day that'll snap into focus and you'll be like, okay, all of those, all of those small business things that I've done and all these things that I've learned now I've, I've, whether you realize it now or not, you you're picking things up. Right. And pretty soon you, you're going to be able to look at it and go, you'll kind of be able to look across that landscape and you'll see a common thread going through it. What's the thing that you did from job to job? You know, for me, it was always leadership. It was always kind of guiding the vision of a product right even when i was just coding or even when i was just designing like and you can kind of look back across go oh shit there it is right you can kind of see that thread across the whole thing and then you can pluck that out and it could take you another decade it could take you 15 years it could take you 20 years you could figure it out tomorrow and then you'll be rich and famous and we'll all come work for you and then we can just make our podcast like, hey, call in and ask me a question and I'll yes. answer it. <laughs> it would be amazing. Like Anna Ferris. <laughs> we got to put a link to Anna Ferris's. <laughs> it was pretty funny and entertaining, Anna Ferris's podcast. What's it called? Un- unqualified? Anna Ferris is unqualified. I don't even know how to spell her name. So I think we're running short on time. We didn't we didn't quite get to kind of tie this back to our identity crisis to this podcast, right? So what are we... Mm. What are we trying to do? And I think, I don't know that we can still answer that question, but I think maybe that's a topic for next week. Or if we do have people listening and want to tell us what they think of this random foray into our into our uh, thing. But I think, I think for me, and I'm just gonna answer for me. Answer for me, it is we still are trying to find a way to. Uh, craft a story for ourselves i think it's very much in line with what you described right we're trying to figure out what how we want to position and brand ourselves and move forward and create this thing that we want to go forward and create and um the purpose of this podcast i think is just to be as transparent with that and i think our tendency is to maybe want to structure it a little too much but we'll see maybe people just enjoy hearing us ramble about our day jobs and where we're at i don't know um I think right now it's it's good that we can just kind of play with it. 
Uh, yeah. For me, I, I feel like this is very much how we're making the demon, right? Because we're all part of it. So getting an eye into who who's making it is definitely part of it. I mean, you can listen to this and listen back to this, and we're all, from what we describe to what we do and where we kind of come from, we're all three different parts that are going to come together and do something, right? So Like fucking Voltron. Fuck yeah, Voltron's back. I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it yet. Before we go into our nerdgasm, insert Alan's amazing uh, thing. Uh, I I wanted to point out. I wanted to go back to the etymology of the word demon, which I'm gonna find an article about it and post it in the show notes. But you know, the word demon actually, you know, now it has kind of a more negative connotation thanks to our wonderful uh, Roman Catholic Church and whatnot. But originally, you know, it a demon was a was like a muse. It was like a source of inspiration, right? It was, it didn't have a negative oh. connotation. It was the thing like the muses or the whatever that would come to you and give you. And they had them for all kinds of different, you know, you know, it was from the pantheistic, you know, um, um, traditions of the past, but it was more of an inspiration. And then of course it got, you know, when the, the church decided to crush all the pagan religions in the world, co-opted it as they did many things and made it a negative, negative thing. But, I like that. It's one of my favorite uh, favorite things like from the words. <laughs> etymology, entomology, what do they call that? Et, et, etymology, E-T-Y-M-O-L-O-G-Y. Mm-hmm. Did you know that alphabet came from alpha and beta? I did know that, yes. I did not I know did that it. until this morning. That's pretty cool. Pretty cool. Alpha and beta. Uh, well, I'm nervous going into insert Alan's because really I don't have anything. Nothing. <laughs> I got. I got one. I got one. I got one. All right, go for it. Teenage well, today is the start of E3, guys. Oh, I'm no. I'm getting really fucking nerdy. Um, and over the past few weeks in my other podcast, we've been going and we actually started a segment called Casual Gamer about how casual of a gamer I am. You're um, not a casual gamer. I'm well, sorry. We decide, we'll have a we whole episode where we will debate the 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 uh, definition. Coming from a guy who used to design and develop casual games, you are not a casual gamer. Well, but continue. You know, <laughs> like people are all into their games, and I, I got given that moniker because I don't. I'm not into the industry. I don't care gotcha. about the industry. But anyway, um, I recently got back into gaming, so I got my. It started probably like uh, eight months ago, um, but. E3 is this week, and um, in in light of that, I wanted to talk about a game that I just started playing that I think both of you would really enjoy. The name of the game is Persona 4. Um, it does not matter that you didn't play 1, 2, 3. It's, <laughs> like, it's like Final Fantasy, where like the, the numbers don't mean anything. It's just a new story, every single one. So okay. you don't need to... Like, maybe there's things that tie the, the things together, but... It's literally a whole new story. So Persona 4 came out a long time ago. I don't, I don't even know the year, but it came out for PS3. Never played it because I was an Xbox person through that generation. And I recently bought a PS Vita because it was on sale for like 100 bucks. And the PS Vita is also part of my nerdgasm, which I think is the as a like as a, a system as like a, a device. I thought it was. I think it's the best mobile gaming device ever made like it's you, the screen is beautiful yep so, it's the first it's the first playstation handheld you've owned 
You never no, had the PSP? Yeah, I didn't have the, P- I didn't have the PSP. Right. Yeah. Um, I've only played... I've never touched a PSP. I've played all the Game Boys. I've played Game Gear. My Gear. previous favorite one was the Neo Geo. I really like that one. That, that's a throw. Oh, yeah, that was a really good system, though. That was, you know, it was a good size and everything. Great games. Um, but that's is it. like... Haley's that should like, ever made no it in America. Neo Geo. I feel like that should be your nickname. I know it was so cool. I had my name in it, but they spelled it wrong. It was G E O, and I'm G I O. Just that's a that's a point of contention here. But uh, my old favorite one was the Neo Geo. I played that for countless hours, but it never made it in the U S. So I was playing all these fucking Japanese games. I had no idea what the hell was going on. I'm just like playing them, you know. But the the PS Vita is such a great system. Like it it does like the remote play. It does all this stuff. Like as a, a console, it's really good. Um, and I don't really know why it died because I got it really like this thing's long dead. Obviously, it's a hundred dollars now, and I think it sold for like three hundred when it uh, was out. I'll tell you why it died. You know why, why it died. died. You know why it died. No, I never. I never. What am I holding? What am I holding up here? It's the be- This is actually the best. Oh, the iPhone gaming system that you. Will How do you buy. play games on that shit though? You just do. But I'm telling you, I'm, you may not. You may not. But the real casual gamers that you just you just threw out there. Play this yeah, by the hundreds of millions, hundreds. But anyway, so so I got my PS. Wait, when you're saying play the iPhone, what? Like when people invite you to play Candy Crush on Facebook? That is the definition of a casual gamer. People that play Candy Crush, people that play, you know, any of those, you know, remember Farmville when that was big? That is the definition of a casual gamer. Your mom is a casual gamer. Your grandma is a casual gamer. Mom is a casual. And they gamer. outnumber. So, so what? Geo they is they actually. What yeah, Geo no, is actually considered, right? anybody who owns a console, who replaces console games or buys PS Vitas, are considered core gamers. And they are outnumbered by casual gamers 100 to 1. I mean, it's, it's, the numbers aren't even close, which There'd is why. Probably. Yeah. Which is why, I mean, you consider how many, I don't remember the numbers right now of how many iPhones or smartphones are in the market in the billions. Everybody has a, a very powerful gaming console in their pocket. Uh, that's why. PS Vita is dying. That's why these these markets are. Yeah. But I got the PS Vita and I'm playing Persona 4. This game's incredible. Like, so I'm four hours into the game. I just got into actual gameplay for the first time. Before this, like, I was walking around. It's an RPG. And for anyone that doesn't know that, which there probably is a lot of our listeners that doesn't know that, um, it's a role-playing game. So you play the role of this like kid in high school, and um, he just moved to this little town in countryside Japan. Um, cause his parents had to do, so, I forgot the beginning of the story, but his parents had to do so, in with his uncle, his uncle's a detective and there's all these like murders that are happening. And the first one was pretty high profile because it was the mistress of this like politician. What? And the mistress was like the, the news anchor lady of this local town. So like, it's a big thing because she's like this little news anchor lady from this small town. And she's dating, or she was like the mistress of this Congress person, or whatever the equivalent in Japan was. And it's funny because they try to do the translation, so it's not exactly right. Like the game's originally Japanese, so like they have trouble with like things like that. Like there's no such thing as a congressman in Japan. So, but they try to like, relate it to you. Um, but anyway, so it starts with that, and uh, basically the premise of the game is that somehow, and I, I haven't got, I haven't, yeah, I haven't gotten far. Yeah, somehow you can go into the TVs. And somehow, like, what? something that's happening within TVs is causing um, things to happen. But you don't even, like, right now, it's kind of like this thing where it's kind of, 
fucking with you. Like, you don't know if these things are actually happening or if it's in your head. So it's one of those things. Like, an Inception type, like, whatever. Um, the music is fucking incredible. Like, the music is all sorts of, like, different types of genres. Uh, Gio, is like I, I, a le- Gio, you're having a legit nerdgasm right now. Yeah, no, this game is so... This is the best game I've played in, in years. Like... I would I would say that buying a PS Vita for the hundred dollars and the twenty dollars for this game the hundred and twenty bucks like if you have it fucking play the game like it's so worth it. Um, so yeah, I, Persona Four. I don't know what took me so long to fucking play, it, but like I just said, PS Vitas are going for a hundred dollars now on eBay. So that's no tax. So fuck the government. Just a hundred dollars flat and no shipping, and uh, twenty dollars for the game on Amazon and it's totally fucking worth it. Totally. So I'd say check the game out. That's my orgasm this week. Persona Four. All right, that was some nerd that was a good one. I'm seeing PS Vitas all on Amazon for ninety bucks. So beat that. oh, even cheaper, used. The mine was not used though. Used was refurbished though, so technically it is new, used. Yeah, but uh, it's like a warranty on it. Yeah, yeah. All right, so Haley, you got nothing. You gotta have something. Did you see a cool uh, movie? Watch a good show. How's Angel coming along? Did you Good. Darla's back. Darla's in the picture. Darla. Which, no, not yeah, a fan? There was a little twist in the mix. I don't know. We're still feeling her out. Feeling her out. Season? Not sure what's going on with that purple powder. Season two. Season two? All right. Yeah. Season three, things really start getting good. Hang in there. <sighs> Man, I'm trying. I just, I feel like they're trying to figure it out too. So we'll see. Um, I feel like I'm not nerdy enough for this. I don't know. No pressure. You don't have to have anything. I mean, well, I guess I'll just say, because I do want to suggest something. Um, well, so like the whole thing about nerd culture, you know, it's feeling like you fit in with people and feeling like it's a community where you belong. And I think the first time I really felt that was, I don't know, with like poetry and like slam poetry in particular. And um, Buddy Wakefield was someone who really influenced me a lot. And there's a publishing company called Write Bloody. And it's out of Austin, Texas. It's founded by Derek Brown. And I've seen um, Derek Brown and Buddy Wakefield and, uh, God, I can't say his name. I feel like an asshole. Anis Mojigani. Sorry, Indian culture. I ruined it. But Right Bloody has some awesome slam poets, and they also publish books, and there's some children's books too. But um, I think I brought up. Is it right, like W R I T E, like writing? Yeah. Yep. And um, I think I brought it up to you too that like the news in the past week has just like fucked with my head, and there's been so much heavy shit. So it's nice to like go back to some of this um, and just anyone struggling or feeling very alone i would recommend checking out right bloody publishing and just see what they're all about because there's some good stuff very cool i will do that i think that's key right you're uh you're gonna see the world through whatever lens you put on your eyes so you gotta find the uh there is i would argue there's more good than there is bad you gotta focus on that I think the bad could just sometimes be louder. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Especially when you have media and guys like Donald Trump. (laughs) Yeah. I'm so pessimistic, but it doesn't bother me. Yeah. Well, then how could you be pessimistic? 
understand. Because there's Ninja Turtles in the world, and that makes it all better. <laughs> <laughs> you sound like an optimist to me. No, believe me, I am pretty <laughs> pessimistic, but it's okay. Exactly, that's like... optimism in its prime. I, no, I know. I, I would not peg you as, as pessimistic, but... Really? You Are you kidding yeah, me? Yeah. I'm like yeah, a so. fucking through-and-through pessimist. <laughs> no, no, you're not. You, uh... Yeah, you that's, a, that's a different topic. All right, so mine is one of the best science fiction novels I have read in recent memory. So much Ooh. so that I am not a fast reader, uh, this novel is nine is eight hundred and fucking too many pages sixty one two pages. Uh, I have read six hundred of it inside of a week, which is a feat for me. It's mm-hmm. Neil Stevenson's Seven Eves. I think it. I don't know how long this has been out. It just came out on paperback, so it's probably been out for a yearish. I think it was. I think it came out in two thousand fifteen. I'm probably the last person to read this book that is into science fiction. Doubt it. It's fucking incredible. So, I and also, people have told me to read Stevenson. He wrote a very famous novel called Snow Crash, which a lot of science fiction buffs hail as one of the best science fiction books out there. I have yet to read it. This is my entry into Stevenson's writing, um, and I will now go back and probably read everything he's written, but he's been doing it for a while. Seven Eves, the opening page of this, the moon blows up. So it's set in modern day, present day, or roughly, the moon explodes. And it, what proceeds is, what would happen if our moon suddenly exploded into a bunch of chunks? And it basically sets into motion the end of the world. And the people of Earth have basically two years to figure out how to uh, save the human race. The knowing that they're not going to save everybody, so they launch a plan to get as many people and as many, um, you know, of our genetic information and the, all of our technology as we can, or, or data and information we can, into space. Um, and it unfolds over the course of so the first two thirds of the book. So basically, the first third of the book is the two years around this catastrophe and them trying to get to space. And it starts with a group of astronauts that are on International Space Station. And you see them, and most of it is from their perspective over space. So you see very little of what's happening on the ground as this catastrophe is unfolding over two years, which makes it just haunting because you know, like, shit is hitting the fan on the ground, but you don't really get to see the shit hitting the fan. You can just only imagine what's happening, and you're, you're centered on these, like, half dozen astronauts in space that are trying to, you know, build, basically turn the International Space Station into what they're calling the ARC, you know, that is going to save humanity. And they're launching, you know, all the countries of the world are launching people into space and and supplies and things over the course of two years. And then the next third of the book is the world gets destroyed. And then you're watching these people try to survive and you realize, but the beauty of it is, is this could happen. Like, like if this happened today, he writes with our current technology how we could go into space and survive. Like we as a race, as a species, could survive the world ending if we had that much time and build colonies in space with our present day technology. Hmm. And uh, and then the last third of the book it jumps in the future five thousand years, and that's hmm. no spoiler because they they tell you in the back you know <laughs> five thousand years. But um, so you get to see, and I love 
the idea of what humans are going to be like in 5,000 years, which is longer than we allegedly have even been, like, in our present, you know, civilizations have been on this planet, uh, what we would be like in 5,000 years. It's fucking incredible. Uh, Ooh, that's interesting. Yeah, because, like, already I'm wondering, like, what are the things they're trying to save? What are these things they're sending up? Like, what well, would humanity deem as the most important aspect? Our genetic code. Our genetic code, right? It is because you have to understand, we have been, over the last 20 years, most of our human genome, the, the, the data on our plants and animals and the things that roam around the planet are in digital form now. So... Uh, the beauty of it is, is we have the technology. Like for example, there's a process, and I'm gonna butcher. I'll I'll put it in the show notes. I forget what it's called. Right. We can actually, and I didn't know this. This is true. I looked it up. We have the technology to basically you as a as a female could have a baby right now without. They call it virgin birth. You could have a baby without a male intervention. They can essentially yeah. inject. I mean- it's you called know, God. DNA. We can do this now. Christ. We can do this Wait, now. They, they, they inject DNA? They don't even need sperm? No, they don't even need sperm. They can basically clone and grow human en- embryos inside the a female's womb without a male. They call it a virgin birth is the slang term, but they have a scientific name for it. But they don't do it now because it's considered unethical, right? Plus, we have no problems with... They they say it in a funny way in the book is there's no shortage of guys that want to impregnate women so they just don't do it. But if we got in a bind, you could do it. Well, you could do you it. do the opposite then? That's what I'm waiting for. I'm waiting for like a man to be able to have a baby somehow. I don't know, maybe. But Schwarzenegger did it. Stop, Gio, with the slack. You, I'm hearing, I'm hearing it right here. I'm hearing it. Oh, just kidding. <laughs> anyway, read the book. It's it's incredible. Uh, Ron Howard just was just announced he's directing the movie version of it. Oh, so I'll watch the movie. <laughs> no, it won't do it justice. I think it needs to be Here's a television series. If anything is over 200 pages, I'm probably not going to read it. <sighs> but you got to think about the quality of those pages. It's it, The quality for me is like it's not going to have – I just don't have the my attention book. span to read a, a book. What? My this is my bookmark, which is one of our postcards that we made. Oh, love it. Find them all over. NYC. We went way over, guys, but that was a good. Uh, well, fun talk. Doesn't matter. I don't care if we went over. You didn't stop it yet, right? Because no. Well, because we're trying to figure out who we are and what we're doing. But let's bring it home. Geo, you want to take us out? All right. Uh, follow us on. God damn it, I don't have the thing. Uh, two seconds, people. You've been here with. Do you want me to do it? I could do it. I got yeah. it. I got it. I got it. Cause you did it in the beginning, so yeah, I got it. Got this. All right. New episodes are out every Tuesday, so be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Like us on Facebook, Facebook.com/slash Love Your Demon. Follow us, HTY Prod, on Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr. Any questions, complaints, or miscellaneous... That was a hard word to say. Miscellaneous comments, send them to podcasts at holierthanyou.com. And, of course, be sure to check out Love Your, How to Love Your Demon at loveyourdemon.com. And, and if you like it, share it with your friends. Till next week, this has been the How to Make a Demon podcast, episode six. Bye. That was accurate. That was real cool. That was like some fucking... You should have paid me for that. <laughs>